David Atterbury, and this is Big Truths, a weekly podcast where we grow in Christian doctrine by looking through the door of church history. Well, this is another special episode of Wednesday Night Class I'm teaching on the spiritual disciplines. You know, when we become disciples of Jesus, it means that we follow Jesus. It is a lifelong apprenticeship. But did you know that part of you following Jesus is to help others follow Jesus? So individually, we follow Jesus, and that is called discipleship. And when we help others follow Jesus, it's called discipling. Well, who should we be discipling? First and foremost, we should be discipling those who are closest to us and those toward whom we have the greatest obligations. So we should be thinking about our own family. And so we're going to spend this episode thinking about family worship and family discipleship. So why should we do it? And what does it look like? When should we do it? And how do we do it? We'll learn about this and more in this episode of Big Truths. Psalm 119, uh, beginning in verse 49. The psalmist writes, Remember the word to your slave, in which you have made me wait. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. The arrogant utterly scoff at me, yet I do not turn aside from your law. I have remembered your judgments from of old, O Yahweh, and comfort myself. Burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have become my songs and the household of my sojourning. I remember in the night your name, O Yahweh, so I keep your law. This has become mine, that I observe your precepts. So the psalmist is one who is afflicted, there are the wicked who pursue him. And it's interesting in verse 53, the wicked are those who forsake the law of God. But this doesn't cause the psalmist to forsake the Lord's word. Instead, he clings to it even more closely. It becomes that which revives him. You see in verse 50, it's been his comfort in his affliction. So in the middle of his difficulty, of his circumstances, he goes deeper into God's word and it's a comfort to him. And he seeks to claim it. Uh, Verse 56, this has become mine that I observe your precepts. He wishes to have it, to own it, to deeply possess God's word in the middle of his circumstances. And so his statutes, verse 54, have become the song of the psalmist. They've become his joy. And so he has not forsaken the Lord, and so he has not turned aside from his law. And so he's equating the Lord and the law together So he knows to disobey or to disregard God's word is to disobey or to disregard the Lord himself. So he's linking together God and his word because he trusts in God. He's going to continue to trust in the word of God. But those who have forsaken the Lord have forsaken his word. 
They've disregarded the Lord because they've disregarded the law. So let's pray together as we seek to be like the psalmist, despite our circumstances, still trusting in the Lord and his word. Holy Father, we pray that your word would be the way that we know you, that despite difficult circumstances, you would help us still to pursue you, Lord, to not forget your word, and that through your word we would find our comfort, and that you would revive us again, that you would be our comfort in the night, like the psalmist. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we think about discipleship, uh, discipleship is following Jesus. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What well, means to become more like him? The word we have for that is discipleship. Discipleship is following Jesus. So that's the end goal, to be like Jesus, conformity to Christ, and the means by which we do that has been provided to us by Christ. So we don't have to go searching for it. We don't have to guess at how to become more like Jesus. We do it through the ordinary means of grace. Discipleship's through the ordinary means of grace. pursue Jesus through the ordinary means of grace. And there's two different ways that we can see that. There are private as well as public means of grace. Private or personal as well as public. And as we think of the public means of grace, uh, we usually call these the elements of worship in our corporate gatherings. So this is largely related to something that's called the regulative principle. So God has the right to regulate our worship. So what do we do when we gather? We, we read the word. Not only that, we uh, sing the truths of God's word. And we pray the heart that we see in God's word. We preach the word and we see the word in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. Nothing extraordinary there. Just the regular, beautiful, ordinary means of grace. And we do this because God has explicitly commanded these things to be done by his people. So we have positive commands. We can find these in the New Testament that churches are to do these publicly. And the ordinary means of grace, just like it says, they're ordinary. They're not extraordinary. Uh, you don't need extraordinary to be a Christian, other than God obviously miraculously saving you, but growing in his grace. You don't have to have mountaintop experiences to grow as a Christian, to look more like Jesus. God has not promised to bless the extraordinary. We shouldn't expect signs and wonders as a part of the Christian life. We should expect the ordinary means of grace as we grow. So even in the early church, where they did have signs and wonders, 
the early church was not sustained by these things. So where do we see this in the book of Acts? Let's turn to Acts chapter 2 as we think about how they grew as Christians. So we got Acts chapter 2 near the end of the chapter. So verse 41, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 41. It says, after the sermon of Peter, and they respond asking what to do, Peter says in verse 40, be saved from this crooked generation. Verse 41, so then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day they, there was added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. So we see, after they become Christians, they're dedicated to listening to the apostles' teaching, to hear about the life of Jesus, to hear about uh, the understanding of how to rightly interpret the Old Testament, that these things point to Christ. Things we saw in Acts 2 about Peter's sermon, rightly interpreting Psalm 110, about Jesus as the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. They're learning from the apostles. They're also having a good relationship and fellowship with one another. They know each other. They're breaking bread. They're praying together. And then verse 43, And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. So they had signs and wonders as well. But notice it was through the apostles. So ordinary Christians weren't doing this. The office of the apostle, they were uniquely doing this. And I think that will bear out as you uh, examine the rest of the, act, the book of Acts. It's the apostles who are doing these things. Verse 44, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were dividing them up with all as anyone might have need. So they were learning about different needs and they were willing to meet those needs. So as they were fellowshipping, they had these kind of authentic, accountable relationships with one another where they were sharing about their burdens and they were willing to uh, help supply and meet those burdens. Verse 46, and daily devoting themselves with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. So in verse 46, they're going to the temple as they understood public worship as good faithful Jews. They were uh, uh, proceeding with what God had provided for them in the temple with public worship together. They were also uh, meeting house to house, breaking bread, having meals, gladness, sincerity of heart, and they were having an impact. We see in the end of verse 47, there were still people being saved day by day. Uh, their number was growing. We have to ask, what does that mean to be saved? Well, look back up at verse 40. Peter's saying, be saved from this crooked generation. And then we're told in verse 41, they received his words and then were baptized. So that's a description of what it looks like to be saved, to hear of the preaching of the word of God, to know your need as a sinner, of the sacrifice of Jesus, and they're believing these words, they're accepting it, and so they are saved. So as these 
Christians are growing together. Uh, they're worshiping together. Uh, they're attending temple. They're sitting under uh, the preaching of the apostles and their teachings. So there is a certain aspect of public worship that's going on as they are devotely uh, paying attention to the preaching of the Word of God and trying to understand these things, worshiping Him, praying to Him as well. But they also know one another. Uh, they're having fellowship with each other. They know about each other's needs. Uh, they're living in authentic relationships with one another. And as they learn about these needs, uh, they're seeking to serve one another. Uh, they're meeting needs. And as all this is happening, the Word of God is being honored and they're having uh, an impact on their community. You see, worship and fellowship, there's service, there's impact. That's pretty catchy. I kind of like those four words. Maybe we should adopt them as a church. Um, and so there's very ordinary normal Christianity going on. Even though there were signs and wonders, that wasn't the emphasis on these things. And as you go throughout the book of Acts, uh, there's more preaching, there's worship, there's prayer together as believers. They're doing evangelism, they're defending the gospel, they're distinguishing it between false gospels of the Judaizers. Normal Christianity, and that's how the church grew with, with one another. And so the, uh, last year, there was a Nine Marks journal published. You've probably heard of the ministry Nine Marks. Uh, every quarter or so, they publish a journal with lots of articles. And the name of uh, last year's article in the summer was The Ordinary Means of Grace. Subtitle, Don't Do Weird Stuff. <laughs> I just love that. Because too often, churches are obsessed with weird stuff. We're obsessed with the new and the unusual, and we want things to be innovative and extraordinary. And whenever we're not happy with this, with worship and fellowship and service and impact, whenever we're not happy with the ordinary means of grace, gathering together and reading God's Word and praying together and hearing preaching and singing and baptism in the Lord's Supper, if we're not happy with these things, if we think they're not really enough, that says more about us than it does God. It shows we don't think what God has given us is sufficient. It shows we have an unhealthy appetite. So this is largely a review of the first time we gathered, but God grows us through ordinary ways. You don't need a mountaintop experience to be more like Jesus. You don't need to go on pilgrimage to the Holy Land to grow as a Christian because there's no secret formula. There's no special hidden technique that some guru's gonna teach you. If you attend his workshop or buy his book that's gonna take your Christian life to the next level, uh, he's not gonna teach you anything that you don't really know already. God has promised us to promise to bless us through these ordinary means of grace. So there's public means of grace, gathering together as a church, as well as private means of grace. And when they're called private or personal means of grace, we should call these the personal spiritual disciplines. Uh, things such as Bible intake, 
or we think of prayer, or we might think of worship. These are things you can do by yourself, all by yourself. Bible intake, reading the Bible broadly as well as reading the Bible deeply, uh, meditating on God's Word, memorizing God's Word, uh, praying through God's Word. These are things you can do by yourself, as well as worshiping God by yourself. Uh, if we met last week, I would have gone over uh, worship by yourself. I would have talked about even singing by yourself, getting alone, uh, getting in your backyard and singing a hymn and just worshiping the Lord for half an hour. It's something you can do. You don't have to listen to um, an hour of me lecture on private worship. You can do that on your own, uh, listening to the, the radio, hopefully good songs, in the car, worshiping the Lord by yourself. So these are private, personal, spiritual disciplines you can do on your own. There's other disciplines that usually require other people, like evangelism, or a stewardship, We think about acts of service as well, serving other people. Uh, these are ways in which we can grow as Christians as well. Evangelism, stewardship, and serving other people as private, kind of personal, well, it's more personal spiritual disciplines, they're not really private, because you do those with other people. And then there's other spiritual disciplines that people have uh, identified in the Bible. They're not necessarily explicitly commanded. These are things we talk about. They're more by necessary inference. So like fasting, um, I'm not sure you can argue from scripture that all Christians should fast. And if you don't fast, you're not being a good Christian. I don't think you can argue that. Uh, Pastor Tom and Pastor Mark Mills have made some really good arguments I've heard before that um, it's not really commanded for Christians to fast. If you want to fast, that's fine. You know, Jesus talked about when you fast. But if you've never fasted before, it doesn't mean you're a bad Christian or anything. Um, I just know Tom and Mark are really cautious about public calls to fast. Because whenever COVID's first started, other churches were saying, we're, we're calling on our whole church, all the members to fast. And we just didn't feel comfortable saying, we ask everyone here to fast. Uh, if you want to, that's fine. But uh, Don Whitney in his book, Personal Spiritual Disciplines, has a whole chapter on fasting. Uh, John Piper has a whole book on fasting called A Hunger for God. Um, I don't think it's wrong to fast. You're certainly welcome to do that. Uh, Don Whitney has wonderful information in his book about that as well. He may even have a few articles online that you can find as well. Uh, other disciplines, silence and solitude. Those are kind of disciplines we put in the category of by necessary inference. So Jesus got alone. He found solitude by himself. Um, it's good to get away and get away from all the noise and sometimes just have a couple hours of silence by yourself in the backyard. But these are things that are not really commanded uh, to us by Christians. Uh, journaling, we've talked about before something that's not commanded, but something that's good, I think, for Christians to do. And just general learning, as well as perseverance. Perseverance. 
in the spiritual disciplines. So these are a number of uh, personal spiritual disciplines. These are basically uh, these 14 or so, uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, these 11 things. These are basically the table of contents for Don Whitney's book, uh, Personal Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. But I want to talk a little bit about worship before we talk about family worship. Uh, worship is a spiritual discipline, and we can be confident, and these especially, these are commanded in Scripture. You're commanded to worship God uh, privately as well as publicly. So when we think about worship, it's very broad uh, by definition because all of life should be worship, right? Uh, drinking orange juice in the morning, that can be a worship experience. Because remember what Paul said, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So it's possible to have breakfast and worship God through it. So drinking orange juice is not commanded in Scripture, but worship is. So you've you got to find a way to even in drinking orange juice to worship the Lord and do it to His glory. Um, Prayer is commanded, reading the Bible is commanded, and worship is commanded as well. So we're to worship God in all things, through all things that are lawful. Worshiping God in all things and through all things that are lawful. Uh, but we must especially give our attention to the things that he's promised to bless. Uh, so we individually are to live lives of worship to the Lord. And there's room to grow in that. We can grow through this discipline. And so we intentionally pursue these means of grace as personal spiritual disciplines. So to be a disciple is to be committed to discipline. So in our first time together, that's the connection we made. The words are even related together. To be a disciple is to be committed to discipline. We strive to follow a way of life. We can learn to do Bible intake, to read broadly and deeply and to memorize. We can learn to worship. We can set up habits of singing even by yourself and focusing on expressing our joy and meditating on the wonderful works of God. And to grow as a disciple is called discipleship. So that's how you grow as a disciple. Discipleship is following Jesus. But part of you following Jesus is to help other people follow Jesus. And that's called discipling. Discipleship is when you follow Jesus. Discipling is when you help other people follow Jesus which is part of you following Jesus. Does that make sense? Part of you following Jesus is to help other people follow Jesus. So who should you be discipling? Well, I, I would argue it begins with those who are closest to you, the people you have the greatest obligations toward. In other words, family discipleship and family worship. So now that we've learned over these past few weeks all these tools, Bible intake and prayer and meditation, what do we do with them? Well, we help others with them. 
we help them follow Jesus as well through these ways. So in our time remaining, I'm going to talk about why, what, when, and how. So family worship. Why, when, what, and how. Why, when, what, and how. So family worship. Why should we do family worship? Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'll start reading in verse 4. It's from the Legacy Standard Bible, Deuteronomy 6 4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall speak of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as phylacteries between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It's a very famous passage in the Old Testament. This is the great commandment, right? What's the summary of the law? What did Jesus say? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus says this is the summary of the law, to love the Lord to love him. This is the great commandment. Eight observations in this passage, as I just have skimmed through this. As we think about loving the Lord, it's not just what we do. It starts that way. Number one, uh, this commandment is to be close personally. commandments to be close to us personally, to love the Lord. See that in verse 5? To love the Lord. Verse 6, these words which I command you today shall be on your heart. The commandment to love the Lord is to be upon our very hearts. It's to be close to us personally. It's a personal matter to love the Lord, to have your heart bent toward Him, to have affections for God. We often think, Loving the Lord is a New Testament thing and having that close, worshipful experience. Know in the Old Testament as well, to love the Lord. Think about the psalmists. Uh, he just had, you know, very few books of the Old Testament, but there's such an outpouring of love to God in the book of Psalms. This command is to be close to us personally. But not only that, it's to be close to our family as well. command not just for us but for our family. See that in verse 7. Right after we're commanded for this to be upon our heart, we're to make sure it's upon their hearts as well as far as humanly possible. Verse 7, 
you shall teach them the commands diligently to your sons. You shall speak of them when you sit in your house. So this religion that the Lord is speaking about through Moses, it's not just to come up to the temple and then leave it behind. It's to be in their very homes. It's to be the subject of conversation with their own children. And not only that, we see there's an enthusiasm. However you spell enthusiasm. There's an enthusiasm to this. They're teaching it diligently, diligently, constantly. They're to speak of these things. It's not just uh, one conversation. They're to do this diligently, constantly as well. And the manner in which they're instructing these things, it's not only formally, it's, uh, we might say, it's a personal kind of relationship. It's a personal instruction. Verse 7, who's to teach these things? You are to teach these things to your sons, to your children you're to teach these things. This is not a drop your kids off at the Levite youth group and the professionals are going to teach my kids about the Lord. I don't have any responsibility. Youth groups are good as a supplement, but the church is not to replace our responsibility as mothers and fathers to teach this personally. There's a personal responsibility. It's not only is it personal, a responsibility. There's a responsibility, an obligation to teach these things. You shall teach these things diligently to your sons. The Lord expected moms and dads to teach their kids about the Lord. Not only that, this is not a kind of dour, grim, formal thing. It's even casual. You notice that in verse 7? Just speak of them when you sit in your house. Just normal everyday life, you're sitting in your house. Talk about the Lord. When you walk by the way, when you're on the road, just casually walking, uh, it's a casual kind of shoot the breeze. Just you're walking down the road, talk about the Lord. When you lie down at night, talk about it. When you rise up in the morning, talk about it. It's a very casual thing. It's also all-encompassing. It's all-encompassing as well. You see that in verse 8? You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. It shall be as phylacteries between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It's an, it's an all-day, all-of-life, every-season kind of thing to talk about the Lord with your family. It's all-encompassing. It's even in the very atmosphere of the home. It's just in the atmosphere. When you cross by the white picket fence, you can just smell religious instruction. It's just thick in the atmosphere. Uh, unfortunately, many people have taken verse 8 and 9 very literally. I've seen Jews wrapping 
leather cords around their hands, having a literal box on their forehead with a little scroll. Uh, even on the doorposts of a house, uh, they used to um, have a little box hammered with a scroll. Now that's been replaced. Even in modern Israel, even in hotels, they have a little uh, replica kind of brass scroll on every single doorpost, even of hotel rooms, on the doorposts of your house. Uh, the Lord's not talking about having this very, very literally, like you got to get tattoos of it on your hand or anything like that. But it's supposed to be just in the atmosphere, instruction of the Lord. Remember what the Lord said through Joshua, Joshua 24, but as for me and my house, we will what? We will serve the Lord. So it's not only that we would seek to love the Lord, but we would pursue this together as a family. Any thoughts, any questions, any observations on this passage? Okay. Let's turn to Psalm 78 now. So we think about why family worship, why family instruction and devotion together. Psalm 78. Psalm 78, beginning at the beginning, a masculine of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will pour forth dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have recounted to us. We will not conceal them from their children, but recount to the generation to come, the praises of Yahweh and his strength and his wondrous deeds that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and set a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and recount them to their children, that they should set their confidence in God and not forget the deeds of God, but observe his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not pursue its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. This psalm teaches us that part of faithfulness to the Lord is to recount the deeds of the Lord to the next generation. So God has commanded fathers and mothers to instruct their children in the ways of the Lord. The generation not yet born needs to be prepared so that they may recount these things to their children. So aren't you glad someone taught you? I mean, aren't you glad that the Lord saw fit to preserve this message so that it could over the generations be passed down to even you? Aren't you glad the Lord has given you this privilege to pass it on to another generation? Think about Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. It's a familiar passage. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but what? 
but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So family Christian instruction is seen as part of normal Christian life. Paul's expecting fathers to bring up their children in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. Paul expected households to be talking about the things of the Lord. So not only do we see this in the Bible, that family worship, family instruction is expected, but we also see this in church history. So I have a handout here for you. We also see this in the example of church history. Thanks, Jesse. So previous generations of Christians understood this much better than us. Uh, we can always fall prey to a bit of chronological snobbery and think just because we're the most recent Christian generation, we've learned so much uh, in comparison to everyone who came before us. Well, I would argue there were generations of Christians who probably knew this and did this better than us. We think about family worship and family prayer and instruction. So for example, if you look at the first page, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith talks about what is worship. They write this in the year 1689, neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now, is now under the gospel tied to or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed. So in other words, we don't have a temple anymore. Uh, we don't need to physically be anywhere to worship. But God is to be worshiped everywhere in spirit and in truth, as in private families daily and in secret, each one by himself, so more solemnly in public assemblies. So the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith says worship can be done anywhere. For example, in our homes every day and in private by yourself and in our assemblies as a church. So it's assumed, as they write, they're assuming private families are worshiping God together. And they even use the word daily, which I think is interesting. Below that, Richard Baxter, one of the Puritans, said this, you may not likely see, you are not likely to see any general reformation till you procure family reformation. Some little religion there may be here and there, but while it is confined to single persons and is not promoted in families, it will not prosper nor promise much future increase. So how does reformation happen in the land? It happens and is able to grab a good foothold in a country when families are reformed as well, Baxter says. Thomas Brooks wrote, a family without prayer is like a house without a roof, open and exposed to all the storms of heaven. Richard Cecil said, let family worship be short, savory, simple, plain, tender, heavenly. Samuel Davies wrote, consider family religion not merely as a duty imposed by authority, 
but as your greatest privilege granted by divine grace. Jonathan Edwards wrote, Every Christian family ought to be a little church, consecrated to Christ and wholly influenced and governed by his laws. Let me now, therefore, once more, before I finally cease to speak to this congregation, repeat and earnestly press the counsel which I have often urged on the heads of families, while I was their pastor to great painfulness and teaching, warning, and directing their children, bringing them up in the training and admonition of the Lord, beginning early where there is yet opportunity, and maintaining constant diligence in labors of this kind. Matthew Henry wrote, Masters of families who preside in the other affairs of the house must go before their households in the things of God. They must be as prophets, priests, and kings in their own families, and as such they must keep up family doctrine, family worship, and family discipline. Dropping down to the next quote, Robert Murray McChaney, if you do not worship God in your family, you are living in positive sin. You may be quite sure you do not care for the souls of your family. If you neglect to spread a meal for your children to eat, would it not be said that you do not care for their bodies? And if you do not lead your children and servants to the green pastures of God's word and to seek the living water, how plain it is that you do not care for their souls. Do it regularly, morning and evening. It is more needful than your daily food, more needful than your work. John Newton wrote, I think with you that it is very expedient and proper that reading a portion of the Word of God should be ordinarily a part of our family worship. So likewise, to sing a hymn or psalm or part of one at discretion, provided there are some people in the family who have enough of musical ear and voice to conduct the singing in a tolerable manner. Otherwise, perhaps it may be better omitted. If you read and sing, as well as pray, care should be taken that the combined services do not run into an inconvenient length. Happy is the family, where the worship of God is constantly and conscientiously maintained. Such houses are temples in which the Lord dwells and castles garrisoned by divine power. Looking at the back, Charles Spurgeon once wrote this, Brethren, I wish it were more common. I wish it were universal with all Christians to have family prayer. We sometimes hear of children of Christian parents who do not grow up in the fear of God and we are asked how it is that they turn out so badly. In many, very many cases, I fear there is such a neglect of family worship that it's not probable that the children that are at all impressed by any piety supposed to be possessed by their parents. A Dutch reformer, Abraham van de Velde, said, particular powerful method to influence our children is that family devotions are well taken care of in the home, as of reading of God's word, fervent prayers, singing of psalms, necessary reprimands, teaching of the catechism, 
and summarizing sermons. We must take care that our families are little churches, like those of Priscilla and Aquila, of Cornelius and others, for by continuous exercise, the hearts of the members of our influence to love and obey the word of the Lord. And finally, Don Whitney, in his book, Family Worship, wrote this, fathers, husbands, if you have been negligent in this duty and great privilege, repent by starting family worship today. Again, you may feel awkward about what to say to your wife or your children about starting, but simply say that God has convicted you of your responsibility to lead in family worship, and you want to start at a given time, today or tonight, almost certainly your wife will be thrilled more than you can imagine to hear you say that. Your children may or may not be as enthusiastic, but that does not really matter. The less interested they are, the more your family needs family worship. The Lord will help you. He does not call His Spirit-begotten sons to this task without giving them the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish it. The same Father who gave you the gospel and who drew you to Christ will strengthen you by His Spirit to put on this badge of godly manhood. So we've talked about why. Why family worship? Why family discipline? I hope you're convinced. I hope you're persuaded. You might be asking, okay, what do I do now? What does this look like? Well, Don Whitney in his book, got this out of order. What do you do? Don Whitney says, read, pray, sing. What do you do? Don Whitney says, read, pray, and sing. Make a commitment to read the Bible together as a family. So this is your homework. Make a commitment to read scripture together as a family. You don't have to know a lot about the passage or the book of the Bible. I'm not asking you to teach a lesson or preach a sermon. Just read it. Sit down as a family. Pick a book of the Bible and just read through it little by little. It doesn't have to have any commentary. You can ask questions. If you have younger kids about the scripture, you can seek to answer things. If they ask you questions, you're going to attempt to answer those as well. But start a simple New Testament reading plan together as a family. Read scripture. Secondly, pray. Pray through scripture. So we've covered praying the Bible. You can do that with your family. After reading it, you can ask questions, you can talk about it if you want, but then close in prayer. You can pray, pray the scriptures, the things you see there in the passage. You can pray those things to be true of you and your family as well. And finally, Don Whitney says, you can sing, sing together as a family. So if you have younger kids, uh, you can go through the kids' core songs that they're going through now. You can ask them what those songs are. You can ask, hey, can we sing one of those songs together? Uh, you can pull up YouTube. That can be a nice help to you or Spotify. 
Uh, or if you don't have a family hymnal, the good news is I brought some. So if you don't have a hymnal, before you leave tonight, I want you to take one of these. It's a family hymnal. You can mark up uh, hymns that you do know. You can put in post-it notes. You can attempt to sing a little bit together as a family, but you can take John Newton's advice as well. Uh, if, if, if it's not practical, okay, I get it, all right? It's a little awkward for three people to sing together. Uh, but your kids, if they're in kids' core, they may want to sing. They may want to talk about uh, the hymns or the songs that they're learning. Uh, they give out little CDs. You can put that on. You can sing that together. Especially if you've got really little kids, you can teach them really simple hymns that they can repeat together, hymns you know as well. But read, pray, and sing. Now, alternatively, if you're not too much into singing, uh, you can read discuss and pray to read and to discuss and to pray I'll say more about that later as far as different kind of curriculum you could work through as a family also go around to that and uh, we'll close with talking about curriculum but when Okay, when are we going to do this? We have the same hours available to all of us each day. We've got a limited number of options of when we're going to do this. So, when you're going to do it, you got a couple options. So, option number one for most families when they're together is in the morning. Families are together in the morning. Usually breakfast time, before you go to work, before you go to school, before you get too busy. Um, however, I think few are that sanctified. Uh, now, I do know older couples in this church. Uh, they've told me about how first thing in the morning they sit down in their recliners right next to one another. They read their Bibles together, and then they have a time of prayer. And I think that's just wonderful. Uh, your schedule may differ. You know, your, your mileage may vary. Uh, mornings are pretty crazy for us. Uh, we're not that sanctified yet to have morning devotions together. Uh, we're scrambling to get ready. So one option is the morning. It may not work for you. The opposite of that is right at bedtime. So you're right about to go to bed, to turn out the lamp together. You can do it right at bedtime. If you've got little kids, it may work, it may not work. Usually at nighttime, if your devotion goes longer than eight minutes or so, they get pretty squirrely. Uh, so that might work for you right at bedtime. Our family, we always pray together uh, before we turn out the lights. Um, but it, we found for our family, it doesn't really work that well. If the devotion gets a little bit long, the kids are a little bit crazy, they're cranky. Uh, I'm getting cranky as well. So another option is after dinner. Right after dinner. So we're all there, we're all sitting at the table. Um, that is an option. But one word of advice, if you try to do family devotions right at the end of dinner, make sure you have everything you need with you there at the table already before you start dinner. 
because otherwise you're going to get into the case of I'll just do this real quick. So, okay, we're going to have family devotion. I'm going to get up and go get my Bible and everything else. And then someone says, okay, I'm just going to go do this real quick. I'm going to go put away the food. Or, okay, I'm going to go go to the restroom. Or I need to take care of this. And then suddenly, you know, everyone's just gone. They just disappear. And it's hard to gather them back together after, well, hang on, I need to change the load of laundry. And then people get really distracted. So it helps to just have everything there with you at the dinner table and just make sure it's always there. So, we talked about when to do it. Let me give some tips on how to do it. Let me give you five tips on how to do it. How do you do family devotions? So five tips. I would encourage you to attach it to what you're doing already. Think about what you're doing already and try to attach it to it. So if you're not in the regular habit in the mornings at breakfast, sitting all down together and talking for 20 minutes or so and spending time together, if you're not already doing that, it's probably gonna be really hard to start doing family devotions in the morning because you're not already in the habit of sitting down. But if you're in the habit already of having a long drawn out dinner with lots of conversation, if you're doing that, it may be good uh, for dinner as well. But think about attaching family devotions in the schedule and the rhythm of what you're doing already. And secondly, I would say make it short. And make it simple. Make it short. Make it simple. More than 10 minutes is probably too much. Make it very short and simple. Also make it consistent. Make it consistent. If you keep it short and simple, it's gonna be easier to keep it consistent as well. Make a habit out of it. Um, try, if you can, to do it every day, because it's kinda of hard to keep a consistent pattern if you only say, we do family devotions two times a week. Because uh, if you miss one of those, it's harder to get back into the habit. Number four, be flexible. Be consistent, try to aim it every day and keep to it, but also be flexible as well. Uh, not every family devotion will go well. The dog's gonna throw up in the middle of your <laughs> prayer. You just gotta be flexible and just say, you know, okay, I'm just calling it here, guys. Let's just, I'll just say a really quick prayer. Let's just, let's just move on. <laughs> just gotta be flexible. And finally, I would encourage you, pursue the work with faith. Pursue the work with faith. You may be at the end of a devotion and think, I don't think anyone was paying attention. I don't think we really accomplished much today. Pursue the work with faith. Trust that God's word and the ordinary means of grace is gonna grow your family. Pursue the work with faith. Trust that God's gonna do good work. And trust that your kids, they may have glazed over eyes, but you never know how God's gonna take his word and work it in our lives. Pursue the work with faith. With our remaining time together, it's only a couple minutes, 
I want to pass this out to you. Mind helping pass these out? Be helpful. Might be enough. You can take one per person. I think we've got plenty. There's only a few. Yeah. So I printed this up. There you go. Uh, there's a couple catechisms in here. Don't, that, don't, don't let that word scare you. Catechism, that just means a method of learning through questions and answers. So there's two catechisms here. The first is by Richard Cecil. It's a catechism for boys and girls. So if you look at the inner cover, page one, it's very, very simple. Usually this is good for ages three through nine. It's really simple stuff. It's good to have your kids memorize this. You can write out flashcards for it as well. So question number one, who made you? Answer, God made me. And this is something in the natural kind of way as we were talking about Deuteronomy 6, just having conversations with your kids. You can just ask your kids, do you know who made you? Talk to your five-year-old, who made you? You can just let them know, God made you. Did you know that? God made you. You can just have that conversation over and over again. So if you're going to incorporate curriculum like this into a family devotion, you see at number one, there's a number of references. So over, over a number of nights, you can read Genesis 1. So Genesis 1, you could read that. And then the next night, you can read Genesis 2. Then the third night, you can read Ecclesiastes 12. Not the whole chapter, just a few verses. And then the next night you can read Acts chapter 17. And then you can ask your kids, if you've got younger kids in the family, you can read after that reference and then ask them, do you see how that verse teaches us what this is saying? Do you see how that shows us God made us? Do you see the connection there? You want to show your kids the connection between these things. So that's Richard Cecil's catechism. It's good for ages... Uh, three through nine usually. It's good for your kids to memorize. And then turn to page 18. So page 18, there's a second catechism I've provided there. This is the Baptist Catechism by Benjamin Keach. Then the questions begin on page 19. As you see, the answers are a lot longer here. So the Keach's Catechism, it's really good for ages nine through 13. And this is good even for yourself to memorize. Uh, for example, Question number three, how do we know there is a God? Do you know off the top of your head a good snappy 20 second answer to that? It's good to memorize stuff like this for your own Christian growth. How do we know there is a God? The light of nature and man and the works of God clearly display that there is a God, but his word and spirit only do so fully and effectually for the salvation of sinners. That's how I memorized it. I think that's a little different in your book as well. So those are two good resources. I would recommend to you. It's a good kind of structure to hold on to if you don't know, you know what to really to discuss and talk about as a family. Uh, this is something you can even go through as couples uh, together if you don't have kids in the home as well. Any final thoughts or questions? Any families here who have found some measure of success in family devotions and worship? Any wisdom you guys would like to share with us? Any encouragements you want to give to any families here? No? I've been doing it for many years, and you hit most of it. Uh, you know, depending on the season that we were in our life, sometimes it was in the morning, sometimes it was at bed, sometimes it was both. Mm -hmm. you know, um, 
read through the whole Bible as a family one year. Wow. Um, we've just done books, you know, John MacArthur books. We've done various things throughout the years. And mm-hmm. Yeah, just do it. Yeah. Good. I'll recommend a couple of resources. Yeah, please. Um, there's an app put out by New City Catechism. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's really good. And um, if you're not familiar with Seeds Family Worship Music, mm-hmm. that is amazing. And it's a great way. They're, they do scripture to music. And so the songs are memorizing Bible verses. So What's the name again? Seeds Family Worship. Seeds. Seeds. Yep. Uh-huh. Um, we listen to it in the car, and it's so catchy. We're even I've memorized more <laughs> scripture while listening to that. Honestly, yeah. Then you're. I mean, Praise I know Lord. you preach for an hour about how to do it, but yeah, yeah. It, it Praise the Lord. Sticks in it's your great. Brain so yeah. well by just listening to it. Yeah. yeah. It, I think God wired my brain that way. Yeah. Good. Great. Great. Anything else before we pray and depart? Well, next week you can come back to this room. Tom Buck will be teaching biblical manhood and womanhood. Before you leave, grab a hymnal if you don't have a family hymnal. Uh, those are yours to take home, gift to you. But Okay. Yeah, Randall. Last week, or uh, I think when you sent out the message about last when you said mm-hmm. you were going to record that message, did you? I didn't get a uh, notice. Yeah, I haven't done it yet, okay. but hopefully I'll get there. I might have missed it. Yeah. I, yeah, early in the week I felt very enthusiastic about my prospect of recovery, but I had a fever for seven seven days. I did, my fever didn't break till Saturday night, but... Yeah, I'll get to it eventually, Lord willing. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, we thank you that you have welcomed us into your family. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to tell the mighty works of the Lord to others, that the generation to come would know you. Would you help us as a church to love one another in these ways, that many people would be eager to serve in the nursery, to tell of the Lord to young ones, that husbands and fathers would uh, take up their responsibility and charge to lead their families in these ways. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace we need for these things. We pray that this would not feel like a burden, but a great responsibility and a privilege to speak of the things of the Lord in our own homes. Pray this all in Jesus' name.